I remember throwing dudes out who were like selling drugs and being like, you can't do that in here, man. Have a good night. And they'd come back and go, okay, if I don't sell any drugs, can I come in? And we'd be like, if we catch you again, you're out for good. And they'd be like on their best behavior. And I thought, huh, it's almost like this was like my first introduction to catching more flies with honey than vinegar and how to win friends and influence people. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to this story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huberman. All right, you're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Jordan Harbinger. How are you, man? Hey, good to see you, man. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. You too. So always got to start, you know, got to imagine you're born, you're in the hospital, you grab a microphone and start interviewing your mom about childbirth. Is that right. how it all started? Like, Was how it right do you away? feel? Sore. Yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much cool. Perfect. So yeah, take me back. Like, where are you from? Where did it all start? I'm from the suburbs of Detroit. And I started, I think my first sort of early... I don't know if you want to call it memory, but I remember when I was around seven or eight, I wanted to be a talk show host on the radio. And the reason, so so, yeah, so I'm kind of doing in a way what I thought I always wanted to do, I guess, if you can call it that. Because I remember listening to the radio all the time. I was an only child. So I listened to the radio a lot, kind of for company in a way, you know, my parents were at work or they were around, but I was like cutting the lawn or like trying to sleep. And I was listening to the radio. And I remember being almost less interested in the music than I was in the casual chatter between the DJs. And I was like, wow, these people are really powerful. Like they can talk to lots of people at once and they can say some sort of mundane cliche about their life. And all of these people hear it at the same time and they're live. And it's like this really exciting thing to be live, but they're not doing anything boring, like reading the news. They're just talking. And I'm like, this is so cool. And then I, you know, I eventually became a Wall Street lawyer and was like, this To sucks. rewind before, before yeah. we get to that, so I want to know the path to yeah. that, because that's yeah. big. Did you, like, host a talk show as a seven-year-old? Did you, like, no. interview? Okay. N- no, I, don't mean, like, I don't mean, like, publicly getting it, but, like, did you have your mom watch you interview your dad or, like, anything like that? Not really. I tried okay. to build an FM transmitter, and okay. I was like, oh, I want to hook up a really powerful antenna to it. So I went to Radio Shack, which like doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. And I remember talking with one of the guys there. And he, Ty Lopez bought it, didn't he? Yeah, he like bought the online rights, but I don't trust anything Ty Lopez says. So I'm going to go with, I don't know. I just feel like that guy, like you could, you might not be able to get within a do- like a, a standard deviation of the truth listening to anything he says. So I went to Radio Shack and I told the guy I wanted to build an FM transmitter. And I showed him the parts and he's like, cool. And I was like, I want to hook up like a high gain antenna so that it goes really far. And he's like, let me tell you why that's illegal. You know, there's a thing called the FCC and you can't just plug a small transmitter into a giant antenna. One, it doesn't have enough power to do that because it's like a nine volt battery controlling this thing. But two, you're allowed to transmit like 30 feet without a license. Otherwise, you need a license. Actually, I didn't uh, know that. Got it. Yeah. yeah so the, like pirate radio and that whole movie, that's that is actually they were international waters, I guess. Right. Yeah. So in that movie, they were all, and I haven't seen it for like 25 years or something, but they were offshore or the original term for pirate radio comes from, and I'm not entirely sure of of the origins of this, but it's something to do with being offshore literally, and then broadcasting on and that's illegal. But in the movie, I think they were also in like a Jeep driving around and they're moving. So it was hard to triangulate the signal. Who's in that? It's like Christian 
Slater or something like that. Or yeah, I, I think even, it was. I can't remember. I've watched it. Same thing. I haven't seen it in a very yeah, long it's time. It's like 90s, 80s yeah. movie at this point or early 90s. Yeah. So I thought that would be cool. And I'm, yeah, I wanted to make a pirate radio station and they were just like, no, you can't do that. But I thought, oh, it'd be cool to at least talk to everyone in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like there was power in that. And that was sort of my beginning to it. But of course, you know, I also really wanted to be Dan Rather, who's a guy who who's a newscaster who's retired. I'm not sure how many people depends how old the people are listening to this. Um, But I was like in my mom. And it's it's funny because I totally caught her in this bald face parent lie where back then and it took me like 30 years to do it. But back then she goes, you don't want to be that guy. And I go, no, it's so cool. He's like they showed footage of him like in Vietnam and there's like explosions and bullets. And I was like, this is super freaking cool. Like He's in a war zone. He's telling people what's going on. He's like right on the front lines describing everything. And my mom's like, those people, they don't make any money. And I was like, oh, and I totally forgot about it, even though I thought it was really cool. She's like, you could barely feed your family if you have one of those jobs. Now I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah. Dan Rather's loaded. The guy probably has like a hundred million dollars from all of his. Yeah, I was just saying, if you make it like Dan Rather and you end up being the main anchor, you do just fine. Right. Yeah. But of course she wasn't wrong. Like if you're a a reporter for like the San Jose Mercury news and you're doing like the sports beat. Yeah. You probably also like work at a restaurant or something like that. You're like barely scraping by and it's a shame. Good journalism should pay, but it doesn't anymore. And so I sort of forgot about the whole thing. And I was like, oh, I don't really want to be a journalist. And, you know, and she's like, oh, also it's mostly writing. And I was like, really? Because he's on TV. So I don't know where the writing is, (laughs) but it just turned out that she didn't want me to go to like friggin Iraq and get shot, you know? That was mostly, that was mostly it. And so convinced you out of it. What what did you think you like? When did that happen? What age were you when you kind of got off of it a little bit? Oh, like eight to ten, and then it okay. was just me being fascinated by it, but also like ten plus years of being totally confused about what I wanted to do when I grew okay. up. So you didn't you didn't have like another passion you jumped into in high school? No, kind of no, 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 okay. no. High school was me fearing the day that I had to get a job because I didn't know what many jobs were, and none of them yeah. seemed appealing, and the idea of owning your own business. I remember telling my parents I wanted to just start my own thing. And they were like, no, the only people that we know that own their own businesses are restaurant owners. And they're all like working like a dog, you know, 14 hours a day. And they're not making that much money because they just own a restaurant. And my parents are like, no, that's only that like a lot of the people that own restaurants, they're like, look, it's the Greek people and it's the Chinese people that like they know how to cook specific kinds of food, but also they just moved to this country and it's one of the few jobs they could do. Like you're going to go to college and get a good job. And I was like, OK, fine. Like they were just looking out for me. You know, they didn't. Yeah. My parents yeah. don't ha- don't have a concept of entrepreneurship be- beyond saying, owning well, a dry cleaner. What did they know? do? Public school teacher and auto worker. So they're more, far more okay. concerned with stability and security and unions yeah. than they are with like risk and reward you know? Yeah. Yep. No, it makes sense. And, you know, parents want what's best and safer. It's funny enough, my dad's an entrepreneur, but when I was looking at what to do next, when I, I was hit a point, like a kind of gap in my career, I wanted to go join this incubator to help launch more companies. And I got offered a job at Warner music. And he's like, you got to take that. I was like, why? He's like, it's way more secure. I'm like, secure. When did you do secure? Yeah. Yeah. But parents, it's just where they default. They want their kids to be safe. So it makes sense. So, okay. So you, was you, your dad always an entrepreneur or did he have like yeah, a 20 year long? His, okay. He, he, he was, and his dad was, so. So there you go. Okay. Yeah. So that's interesting. There's a lineage, yeah. Do you ever think like, do you ever go like, dad, did you just tell me to do that? Cause you didn't think I had what it takes to run my own business. And he's just probably like, Oh, I actually never questioned potatoes. it. 
But yeah. I think it was, it, it was such a side comment for him. I think it was just like, no, that was a good company. You got offered a great job. Take it. Like, yeah. I didn't know if you were going to go swing the bat again. No, it might have never been discouraging on the entrepreneur side. He's actually the opposite where like he did pay for my college, but never understood that he like barely graduated high school and crushed mm-hmm. it. He's been super successful. So when I went to college, it was kind of like this half-ass, like, yeah, I want my kid to be educated, but God, you're going to college. It's such a waste of fucking money and time. <laughs> yeah. 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 I so, feel like that now. I mean, my kids do, yeah. so I don't have to worry about it for a while. Yeah. But I think, it's, I think about that because my kids should be on the way at sometime soon. Great. It's going to be so different when our kids are yeah. going to college. If they do education if in 20 do. years, is going to be very, very different. Yeah. I, I mean, it's hopefully going to be what it should have been when I went to school, which is Okay, are you going to be a doctor? If yes, college. Are you going to be a, do- yeah. a lawyer? If yes, college. Are you going to be yeah. an engineer? If yes, college. Architect, yeah. same thing. Yeah. Are you going there because you don't know what else to do with your life like me? If that, no. Go get a job and figure yeah. out what sort of the real yeah. world looks like and how much things cost and like yeah. what you love and what you hate. And don't spend $168,000 memorizing the skull shapes of pre-humans. Yeah, a- amen. And though yeah. there's some fun things about it. Like I, I was the guy that didn't know what I wanted to do, but... I needed the social aspect of college. I was mm-hmm. that person. Academically, I had no problems and frankly, weren't shit in college. But mm-hmm. socially, I needed it because I went to a t- I grew up in a tiny town with a tiny school and didn't have that side. But bringing it back to that question, actually. So when did you actually have to get a job? When did that kick in? My parents were keen on me getting work experience fairly early on, like not super, super early. I think I was 15. I got a job at a movie theater. You know, they didn't, they didn't try and like bend child labor laws or anything. I was working in the neighborhood, like doing landscaping and lawn mowing kind of stuff early. I'd also done entrepreneurial endeavor and well, let me put that in air quotes. I've done entrepreneurial ish stuff when I was young. Like I figured one of my friend's dads was a stockbroker and I figured out how to get quotes on the internet. And this is like 1994. So he's like the internet, you know, we have, we get faxes every couple hours with like updated pricing. And I think that's, and I was like, no, I can get almost up to the minute or up to the, whatever it is online pricing for this stock. And then I can bike over to your office or I can call you and tell you what it is, or I can bike like a printout down. So he was paying me a couple hundred bucks and I was doing that. My parents were like, are you, what are you doing? You know, are you selling drugs basically? Cause no kid has like a hundred bucks when they're that age. Yeah. yeah. And, and like, and I'm like, no, I'm earning it by giving Mr. Shaughnessy like stock quotes. And my dad's like, what you can get stock quotes. So I, that was sort of our uh, entree into the internet. And I, I had a lot of information that I could get from the internet that nobody else could get. And that this is pre Google, pre Yahoo, like this is early, early, early stuff. So I had those kinds of endeavors, but my parents were like, you need to get a job. And I remember it being really, really, really freaking pointless because I was making like five twenty five an hour at this movie theater. I think, I think it was five twenty five or five seventy five an hour. Can't remember. But so it took me and then I paid taxes on it, you know, so it took me like two weeks to earn what I would earn in an hour getting somebody some information from the Internet that they wanted that they didn't want to go and find at the library. I was basically like a researcher, but I was really young. I used Gopher and library computers to get it. And that was that was super interesting for me, super easy for me to do. And I I was doing like kind of kind of getting in a little bit of trouble with like the hacking and stuff, but no like federal crimes per se. So working at the movie theater was like my early work experience, but even that turned into an entrepreneurial venture of sorts, or at least into a side gig, I should say, because there is the movie theater was owned by the daughter of the owner of the Detroit Red Wings. So he's, you know, he's a billionaire. He's since passed, but 
very very wealthy guy also owned little caesar's pizza so this movie theater was kind of like i she she wasn't that nice to me so i feel comfortable saying this this was clearly him buying this for her so that she would have a business to run even though she was completely inept at running it and it probably lost a ton of money definitely um, know those people know yeah. exactly what you're talking about <laughs> yeah exactly he's like okay honey you can have a fancy old building yeah. in, in our town that you can say is yours so that you can talk about it at cocktail parties and show up once every two months to find out why your business is bleeding my money as long yeah. as you stop bugging me you know so that was that kind of business but he was very paranoid the owner and the own the owner of the red wings and, and little caesars in fact oh. he probably had good reason to be because he was a billionaire and who knows he was you yeah. know he's a billionaire in the 80s and 90s like there's a good chance there was organized crime yeah. going after him and trying to shake him down so he yeah. had these security guys that would come into the theater all the time and work in the theater and stop loss and like if ever his daughter was there there'd be a security guy there probably to keep her from getting kidnapped or whatever and whenever he was there there were security guys there so i would talk to these security guys and you know they would be like bored and they would teach me martial arts in the back hallways of the movie theater and they were talking with me one day and they're like yeah i run this company security company we're, we like do investigations and security for mike illich the owner of the red wings and little caesars and, da, da, da. and i was like oh man i want to learn all these cool like martial arts techniques that you know and i want to work in a place like that and they're like yeah well you know a lot about the internet can you make us a website and i was like i can definitely make you a website so I started to go down there yeah. to Detroit and work on the website from my home. But I started to go down there to get paid in training because I was like, I don't want money. I, I don't need money that bad. I'll take like gas money and a couple bucks, but I'd much rather learn how to do badass martial arts stuff from special forces guys than what I'm doing now. So I basically yeah. was making like the same amount or more money, but I was also getting this really cool training that kids don't have access to. Hell, adults don't even have access to so that was kind of like where i started and i started getting introduced to a lot of adults that were doing a lot of adult stuff and so i started to really grow up fast because it was like yeah, I was I was say, the, so you're 15 16 at this point at this point 15 uh, at this point 16 17 because i was driving okay. myself yeah Right. So and I was the only white guy at work for a lot of the time. So mm -hmm. it was interesting because there were there were times where since it was a security outfit, some of our clients were like high end, you know, billionaire or like Puff Daddy or Ice Cube. We'd be doing protection for them. But then like other times it would be like, OK, we have a client that needs us to make sure there's no drug dealers on his property. And I'd go, OK, where is it? And they go, it's here and here and here. And I'd show up and the other security guys are like. Okay, before you freak out, this is an after hours brothel. It's totally illegal. We're just trying to get the drug dealers out of here. And I'm like, okay, so I'm 16, 17 years old. I'm on like the east or west side, usually the east side of Detroit in the middle of the hood. And they're like, you're driving. You're also looking out. If anybody rolls up in an SUV, call us on the radio. Like if other gang dudes get out of the car, call us on the radio. If the police show up, call us on the radio, you know, that kind of thing. And I'm doing this and like, they're like going inside and like beating up Dominican drug dealers and like throwing them out and like taking their guns and throwing them in the back of my car and confiscating drugs. And like, then the cops would show up and they'd like open my trunk up and I'd be like, yeah, we threw all the drugs in our guy's car. All the guns are in there. The cops would like take the guns, take the drugs, like pocket bunches of like cash. I saw police corruption firsthand. I saw all kinds of crazy stuff go down and I was really young. And then other times, like I said, it would be like, okay, we need to drive all the strippers home from this strip club because they're paying us for protection so that they don't get followed home and yeah. guys pick them up instead of them like leaving on their own from this like shady joint. Yeah. So I had all kinds of experiences like that at age 17, 18. So I grew up pretty fast and I started learning like 
how I started learning like street smart did stuff. Did your parents know you were doing all this or? Not really. Like they knew I was working at a security thing, but they thought I was like an IT guy for a security yeah. company. They yeah. didn't think like I'm my son is driving strippers home so that stalkers don't stab them, <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, that, I think that'd be a hard thing to share with your parent, the, the one that wanted you to be safe. <laughs> yeah, like work at some movie theater and yeah, sell gummy exactly. bears. And I'm like, yeah. oh, I got a job as an IT guy. And they're like, cool, where is it? And my parents grew up in Detroit. So they're like, Van Dyke in East Jefferson, you don't go there every day and stay there and you're not there at night, are you? And I'm like, oh, um, sometimes I'm in the Southfield office. And they're like, okay, right? You know, like Southfield is a little bit more suburban, a little bit yeah. safer. But the place where I was was like the straight up hood. Like yeah. we, the the place that I worked that was an office, whenever we were in the office, was a front of a house and had a commercial storefront in it. And it had glass windows all up against it. And my boss was like, when, as soon as we got the office, I remember one of the Saturdays, he called me into the office and he's like, can you help me put up the metal sheeting? And we literally put up like metal sheets behind the glass because he's like, there's this glass is going to be gone in like a week. There's no way that the, the landlord who owns this building is going to replace it. And there's people are going to break this immediately yeah. um, as soon as we start making enemies around the neighborhood, which took like 48 hours, you know? Yeah. Yep. Fair enough. And so did you, you did that all through high school or how did, what, yeah. how did that kind of read on? Got it. I did it all through high school. I mostly did it like a little bit in college, but I started to be too busy in college. And also it started to be kind of more dangerous. Like we started taking more dangerous security gigs. I saw a couple of people get shot. Like I wasn't really keen on joining them. That's big. You're 18, 19 years old and seeing people get shot. Yeah, like, it was like traumatizing. You didn't join the military and go to war. Like you're in Detroit, which I guess some people would relate to that. But. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like the guys that were getting in, like people that were getting shot were like either they got shot and they were on our team or they got shot and they were like the drug dealers. But like, I'm like, okay. I remember one of the last days that I was there, that the day I kind of decided I'm not doing this anymore. My boss, there was a, a drug dealer. We had screwed up his turf, screwed up his deal. We were at this club. His guys ran security there, but they were just selling drugs. The club owner called us, said, get these guys out of here. We got those guys out of there. And like the next week, that guy came back and was like shooting people in front of the club because he was like, oh, you're encroaching on my territory. So we all hid behind our cars. Somebody was like just passing out weapons for us to use. I'm like, okay, fine. I'd done, I, they'd already taught me how to shoot and everything, but I was like, I'm not shooting someone, obviously, unless I have to in self-defense. But I remember my boss, snuck this guy was approaching the door of the club and my boss was behind a car and he snuck up behind this dude and just blasted him and their brains were blood all over my uniform and i was like okay so i washed my bulletproof vest in my uniform that night and i was like i am not going back and doing this shit again so i told my boss i was like hey i shouldn't be posted at this place he's like don't worry you're gonna be at the yacht club from now on so i always had like cush gigs being like a doorman at a yacht club. And I, I just remember <laughs> like thinking about how different the worlds were that we were in. Cause the yacht club was in a, a neighborhood in gross point, which is adjacent to Detroit, like probably two miles away from where this dude was it actually a yacht club. It was, yeah, it's an actual yacht club. Yeah. And it's for like rich old dudes to like go and drink after they are done boating. And yeah. I remember a lot of the guys in this yacht club who were like drunk, divorced, kind of like insecure guys being like, oh, you're a kid. What are you going to do? And I remember thinking to myself, I literally just watched a dude with a gun come at me and then get blasted. And this like dorky midlife crisis a hole is going to yeah. like shit talk me. So yeah. I remember thinking like, dude, you have no idea. Like, yeah. You, you've been behind a desk for a long time, like calm down. And it, it was the kind of place where the biggest trouble that I had was an old guy trying to drive a Lambo so drunk that he couldn't even get in the car and me just pulling him out 
it, like I'm not a big guy. If you're not watching, if you're listening to this, I'm five nine and a half, okay, and I yeah. wasn't taller in high school, okay, <laughs> like, and I was probably like 165, 75 I like the pounds. Half, by the way, you're five nine and a half. You, yeah, you, like they, when you're let them hu- take that from you. When you're my height, you will you gotta really lean into like every bit that you have. So I'm not like some big dude, which is why those guys were picking on me. But I just remember thinking like, holy cow, like the and stuff that some of the training I had was like gun disarms and like yeah. chokes and stuff. So there were there were a lot of times where I had to use that stuff, but not at the yacht club, obviously. Yeah. But like a lot of these clubs, I remember, you know, disarming guys, taking bottles away, taking guns away from drug dealers and like, you know, Nation of Islam guys getting in my face. So I had this weird sort of street education early. And then I'd go back to like the suburbs where everybody drove a BMW in our high school parking lot and, <laughs> and be like the normal guy. And it was just such a weird sort of upbringing. So I want to keep going, but I have one last kind of question. Like, where did you progress from, I'm going to build you a website and like, I'm going to be your IT guy too. Like, and I know you were training, but like, at what point did you go, I'm going to go like actually hit the road with these guys and that you were comfortable with that? Like, where was that trigger? Yeah, that was sort of like thrown in. I, I remember I was driving my boss around a lot. You know, I was a, I was a good driver. I had a car that I had leased because I, my dad like helped me lease a car because he was a Ford employee and I got straight A's <laughs> for like three straight years. So he's like, okay, I'll help you lease a car you know, and use my employee discount. So I, I had like an SUV and I would drive the guys around to and from work and they paid me as like a, almost like a shuttle service to ferry the guys around. And we had like a vigilante arm of our security company that was cleaning up the neighborhood because they also were in charge of doing security for the landlords in the area. And they're like, we can't do security for the building when outside the building there's crack hose and there's drug dealers and there's all these thugs. So we're going to get the thugs out of the neighborhood. And the landlords are like, great. If you're going to get the thugs out of the neighborhood, we're going to, you know, sweeten up your contract, pay you a little bit of cash under the table because people want to rent buildings when all of the area is secure, not just when yeah. like the building is locked. So yeah. we would go chase drug dealers. And the reason we did that, the, like, that's how I ended up getting thrown into this because we'd be driving to and from some store to get like food before our shift. Yeah. And we'd get a call that's like, hey, you know, TJ, who's like a wanted drug dealer felon is on the block selling drugs is what that meant. And so we would roll up on him and like three dudes would dive out of my three big ass dudes would dive out of my SUV and go tackle TJ and like put him in zip cuffs or regular handcuffs, throw him in the car. We'd call the cops and they'd come pick him up. And so I and I was driving and there were times where like guys like TJ or everybody, they run. They yeah. would run and I would chase their ass down in the SUV, which is incredibly stupid, but we would eventually catch them and, you know, knock them down or they'd jump over fences. But I, and like my boss, we had these Nextel radios. Remember those? They'd be like, yeah. and you could do that, push to talk. So they'd be like, meet us three blocks da, 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 and such and such. So I'd, I'd be like speeding over there. And I remember one time I, I pulled out in between. They said he's going through the alley and I knew the neighborhood really well. So I pulled around and I just parked right at the end of the alley. And so this guy's like running and suddenly my SUV's like at the end of the alley and he just stops and he's like, shit, because he can't get by. He's either got to jump over my car yeah. or he's done. So if of course, he stops. He's looking around. But that was all the lead time my guys needed to just tackle his ass in the middle of winter. So, yeah. like, we, we did a lot of that stuff. And they were like, oh, you don't lose your shit when you're thrown into the middle of it. And then that's when I started getting more and more, like, normal sort of yeah. tough postings. And then there'd be, like, huge fights at some of these clubs. Like, I remember one of the postings that I got before some of the crazy Dominican drug dealer type stuff. One of the postings I got was this Mexican club and super nice people, but good Lord, like they would just drink. They drink like 30 beers. And then by the end of the night, you get guys that were super nice and polite. And a lot of them were all like a lot of the guys at this particular club were also gang members. They would be 
totally nice and polite in the early in the night. They were they were weren't looking for any issues with me at all. But 30 beers later, they're like, I'm bored and this music's getting to me and the girl I like is dancing with some other guys. So I'm just going to like throw a folding chair at you. And I'd be like, come on. You know, so we would get in these huge brawls this club and they'd be fighting each other and stuff. There was never any gunfire at this one. It was almost like a sport. Yeah. And it was just like these guys were from like the west side of Detroit and they grew up brawling and they were like, you're here, you're going to brawl with us. So I remember getting hit with a lot of chairs and like full beer cans, full cans of Modelo bouncing off me or my <laughs> head, you know, at four o'clock, two o'clock in the morning. I guess that four is when I left. Two is when the club closed. That They always it'd be like 155. I'd be like, oh, we're going to leave soon. These people are all out of here. And it was like 156 on the nose. Somebody's getting hit with a chair and or a full can of beer. And I'm like, uh oh, it's going to be that kind of night, huh? This is one of those. Nice. All right. So you graduate high school. You stop doing the security thing. What? Where? You you go straight to college? Yeah, I went to college. But I also, I, I my senior year of high school, I actually was an exchange student in Germany. Oh. And okay. so I, because I got so bored of high school, and my parents were like, "Okay, he's bored, and he's starting to get in a little bit more trouble." But also if we send and, and so we can send him away and maybe he won't get in as much trouble, but also he'll quit this job that we hate. Because at some point when you're getting hit with beer cans and chairs, you come home with a black eye. Yeah. Or like you got your you have like a knife cut in your vest and they're like, what's this from? And it, you're like, yeah, somebody slashed me. And so I need to like yeah. sew up my shirt and my it's my carrier for my bulletproof vest and why does my son have a bulletproof vest is another sort of red flag that my parents were like what the f is going on here so like there was a lot of like worry and they were like oh good we can ship him off to germany perfect you know so i did that but i ended up in the former east germany which is like former communist country and it was only seven years out of being behind the iron curtain yeah yeah so I had started learning a lot about social dynamics and human behavior and like patterns of like power when I was doing that crazy job because the crazy job involved my, like I'd see my boss talking with a gang leader and he'd introduce me and I'm like, isn't that guy like the enemy? And he's like, yes, but also being on his good side is great for us because if that guy thinks we're cool, he knows we're not a threat. His guys aren't going to mess with us. You know, next time you get hit with a beer, they're not going to be coming after you because we're cool with him and he's the leader of the Latin counts in this area. So like no one's going to mess with you. He knows we're just here to stop theft and stop fights. So you're, you know, we're safer being friends with this like really bad drug dealer guy. And I'm like, what? You know, he's like, all right, other guys, you know, who are here that are selling drugs, like we don't just beat them up. Like that's how you do it at your, at some of these clubs. We treat everyone with respect. And I remember throwing dudes out who were like selling drugs and being like, you can't do that in here, man. Have a good night. And they'd come back and go, okay, if I don't sell any drugs, can I come in? And we'd be like, if we catch you again, you're out for good. And they'd be like on their best behavior. And I thought, huh, it's almost like this was like my first introduction to catching more flies with honey than vinegar and how to win friends and influence people. And I remember my boss was like into self-help. He's like, read this book. And it's like how to win friends and influence people. And I was like, oh my God, this shit is genius, you know? Nice. So So you go to Germany and did you leverage that as that was part of it? Yeah, so I started to learn a lot more about power and, and social dynamics then too, because- Look, West Germany, a lot like the United States, not a high level of corruption. Things work. Germans are famous for like low corruption, making things work on time. East Germany was not quite like that. You know, I remember like one of the first days that I was there, my host father, who was just a 
a gym teacher. He also was in a band. So he had all these connections. And like he told me all these stories that were really interesting and il illustrative. One of which was in order to get your driver's license in East Germany, you, it took like two years. But so what he did was he contacted his cousin in Canada. He because the thing was bureaucracy like crazy contacted his cousin in Canada goes I need a case of Jack Daniels or Jim Beam or whatever his cousin sends it he gets it there's a couple bottles missing which is how importing things worked in communist bloc countries they took their piece so he gets the case he goes to the driving school and he goes I know this is like an eight-month course but I already know how to drive and they're like do you and he's like these bottles of Jim Beam or Jack Daniels, whatever, say that I know how to drive. And they're like, cool, we have to give you a test. Normally it takes like eight months to get to that test, whatever. He's like, cool. He does the driving test. He's fine. They're like, okay. Gives him another bottle. Dude stamps his little permit, goes to the police station. They say, oh, there's an eight-month wait for us to verify your test results and then apply for the permit for you to drive a car in East Germany. And he's like, how much faster is it if you guys get Jack Daniels? And they're like, we can do it right now. So, you know, he takes the other two bottles, hands them to the cops, comes back with a driver's license. So he turned like an 18-month process, whatever, yep. two-year-long process, into an eight-minute eight <laughs> or whatever, two-week-long I feel like this is the best Jack process. Daniels commercial that's ever existed. Yeah, like, it totally is. Yeah, totally. Jack Daniels and anything can get done. Yeah, like smooth it, smoothing things over. Yeah. So he told me tons of stories that were like this and we would go out sometimes and he would be like oh we don't have to pay here because my old buddy who like used to book our band at this club back when this was a thing he runs the such and such thing so he has this network of like og boys club guys who through music because he was a teacher remember but through music it bridged like the teachers met only teachers and other administrators but since he was in the band he knew like the restaurant owner here who knew the venue owner at this thing so when there was any sort of international big to do it was like i scratch your back you scratch mine and they'd be like we'll play a gig for free at your next thing if you can get us all tickets to this thing that we all want to go to and he's like deal you know so there was a lot of like oh you're going to get us jeans from your cousin in Canada and then you're going to bring them and we'll sell them in my bar. Yes, but you have to constantly book my band as entertainment at your bar. Okay, cool. So they always had these like little hustles going because that's how it is in yeah. socialist communist countries. There's a free market. It just comes out of this. It comes out of the woodwork, you know? Yeah, no, that makes sense. So and you were there for a year. How long were you there for? Yeah, about 11 months I was there and I went to a public high school and everything. I would say, cool. do you speak German? I do now. Yeah, I speak almost fluent German at this point. But when I got there, I didn't. And they were like, OK, you just don't have to do any work, which is cool. Yeah. But what I did is I got a, I was like, this is a one in life, once in a lifetime opportunity for me to really yeah. learn a language well. So I got a little translator. It was like this little Franklin electronic dictionary. Yeah. And it like with a black and white two line screen, like that's how old this, this tech was. But I remember listening to a lot of things and just looking up every damn word that I heard. And yeah. I remember like three months in, I was super homesick, super lonely. I was like, I'm not learning German. This really sucks. And then one night I had a dream and it was like in this bad German. And I woke up and I journaled it because I was journaling every day back then. And then I was like, maybe if I just start speaking it like I did in my dream, I'll learn more. So I started to just like speak a little bit right. more and yeah. teachers were forcing me more. They're like, you've been here for four months, dude. You've got to try. They'd make me like give presentations. And I would be like, hi, I am. Thank you for you're helping and everyone is very nice you know and they would like laugh a little bit but they'd be like okay fine you know thank you and then as time progressed i was i started hanging out more with kids my own age a little bit more i got from i bumped up a class level and older older classes in europe man americans treat i realize now we treat our kids 
like like kids. Yeah. And Europeans, they really treat their kids like adults. Like we were 16 years old at the time or uh, and actually everyone else was 16. I was probably like 17, 18 at this point. I was a little older, but it was like, we're going to go on a trip. And I thought, uh, we're, field trip. Okay, we're where are we going to go? Like some museum? And they're like, we're going to Italy. And I was like, wait, what? We're going to Italy? Yeah. And then we're going to go to England later. And then there's a ski trip later in the year. And I was like, who's going? We have to bring our parents. And they're like, no, two teachers are going to go with all of us. We're going to stay at youth hostels. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. All the guys are probably in one room. All the girls are in another room. And the teachers were like, nah, pair up with whoever you want. I'm like, wait, let me get this straight. Y'all are going to bed. There's a bar downstairs. We can drink beer and wine because we're over 16 and you're going to let us bunk up with girls and guys mixed. And they were like, you're all adults. And I remember thinking, no, we aren't. And also (laughs) this is awesome. You know? So I just remember getting like so drunk with like a bunch of really cool kids, but everybody was pretty responsible. People weren't like projectile vomiting everywhere. They were just having fun. Because it's not taboo. Right. That's that's what you've always heard there. It's like, it's like not some crazy thing. So they're not like, Oh, this is my chance. Cause it's like free reign. It was just free rent. So we would be like skiing and hanging out and like people would be like bringing beers on. They'd be like, yo, I brought a beer up on the ski lift and we'd be like drinking this beer on the ski lift and stuff. And you could it was just so freaking fun. And I remember going to college after that year uh, at Michigan and I was probably 19 and at that point or 18, 19, whatever the year overlap was. And I just remember everyone going to the hospital with alcohol poisoning. And I just remember thinking, I'm with a bunch of freaking kids again. You know, this is awful. Because I had grown up like three or four or even five years in that year in Germany. I was just way, way outside my comfort zone. And I had... Yeah, I was fluent in German. You know, I'd only been speaking and listening to German. My host father always tell we're still in touch. He, he goes, yeah, the first three or four months, we couldn't get you to talk. And then after that, we couldn't get you to shut up, basically, was how it was. Awesome. And so what'd you go to college? What'd you decide to go to undergrad for? Yeah, I that was a good, that's a good question. So I started to take economics and I was huh. like, this is really cool. But then in order to get an econ degree, you had to take these super difficult accounting classes that yeah. were in, in math classes that would just like break you. And they did that on purpose. They were called like weeder courses. And this is the dumbest. This is one of the dumbest concepts in academia. I'm sure you're familiar with this. But basically, you take a course that is so god awful and so difficult and graded on a curve and everyone hates it and everyone's miserable and everyone's got a tutor and everything. And they do this because they want you to quit, I guess, the concentration, which to me makes absolutely no sense at all. But they want you to quit. And, and they think it's going to help you develop skills that are going to show up at some point in the concentration. Well, for the people that don't, they're, they're the tough ones that made it through. It's like trying to force evolution with a completely, like, and it's correlation, not causation. Meaning, yeah, sure, the people that stick it through may end up all right, but it's not because your weeder program actually did anything. And so, yeah, it's a ridiculous right. academia thing. It really is. It's it's not. Yeah, you're right. It's not because the weeder course did anything. It's because a lot of people who didn't have the toughness to get through to get through a math class or like yeah. buckled under the pressure of it, not totally unrealistic expectations. They couldn't make it through. And, and it sucks. You know, so I stopped doing that. And, and then eventually I was like, OK, I want to figure out how to hack this system. Like I'd already been kind of like doing computer hacking stuff, system hacking, job hacking, you know, college application hacking, high school hacking, you know, with my exchange year, what I did to give you. We didn't talk a lot about the hacker stuff, but like one of the things that I did with high school was I had to take typing a language art and a couple other classes that I was just dreading. And so what I did is I went to Germany and I was like, the the school said, 
tell us what classes you're taking. And what they did is they sent a letter to the principal of this German school that I was at, who, and he really liked me. He's a nice guy. And he goes, can you fill out this form? They're asking what classes you're taking or something. Just fill it out with the, the English teacher. So the English teacher goes, oh, you need art, typing, history, and language. Okay. And I went, great, I'm doing all of these. And she was like, pretty much. So he just sent that back. And I graduated, and he was like, wow, you took like— 17 credits the year you were in germany when in reality i was not doing i was skipping school half the time and like learning german and like drinking with friends and learning about history and traveling but to be real the things you just listed like history don't get me wrong there's things to learn there you've learned plenty since then and then art like what you do you're learning you learn the language like would those things have been a better experience for a 17 18 year old no like no. what you did was probably the most valuable, one of the what way more valuable than a senior year of high school. Way more valuable. And and I even told the English teacher and my host father what I was doing just to make sure I wasn't going to get in like heaps of trouble. And he goes, your job is just to learn German, learn German culture and have a great time and, and also get experiences that are not American. Don't worry yeah. about not being great at art and also typing. He's like, you're the biggest computer dork I know. Yeah. I don't think you need a typing course, man. Yeah. So right. it was just all these bullshit formalities. So then when I went to under grad, I kind of did the same thing. I was like, okay, econ is going to do this. I don't really, I want to do business. I want to do international relations and languages and stuff like that. But there wasn't like an international relations undergrad degree at Michigan at the time. So what I did is I went to my guidance counselor and I said, I want to mix German and Spanish and maybe another language like Russian, and then take a bunch of econ classes and a bunch of poli-sci classes. And he goes, you can do that. It's a huge pain, but you have to appeal to the academic standards board, but you can do it. So I created my own concentration as an undergrad. And this was so awesome. Only a few people did this every year because you needed to write all these essays and do presentations. But it was amazing because what would happen is I'd be taking like communist economics in the econ department. And then I'd be taking like business German 432 and medical Spanish 431 or whatever it is or 331 and then i'd also take like the politics of the fall like the fall of the soviet union and the arab israeli conflict and none of those are one concentration but if you make your own you go to your guidance counselor and you go can i take all these and he goes just come up with a justification about why it's necessary for your concentration and he goes but in reality you should just be you should just do whatever you're interested in and we'll figure it out so i just took a bunch of classes also a great guidance counselor. I feel like some get stuck great. in the bureaucracy, but that sounds like a great he one. He was awesome. He totally got it. I was like, I got to be honest. I really just don't want to take all of these calculus heavy courses. And he's like, well, you should be fluent enough in math to use it, but I don't see why you need to take accounting 232, which is a freaking nightmare just yeah. to like get a business degree when you don't need it. You're making your own degree. And of course, I named it Integrated International Commerce because you get to come up with your own name. So I was Perfect. like, oh, yeah, I'm a I'm an IIC grad from Michigan. And they're like, whoa, that sounds impressive. You know, like yeah. that sounds very fancy. So I used that and. That was actually a huge advantage in getting into law school as well, because law school, especially at Michigan, they require super high grades, super high test scores, or you've got to be really unique. You ever wonder why, like, Natalie Portman or whatever goes to Harvard? Maybe yeah. she's really smart, but also she's such a really unique person who's famous. So yeah. I was like, okay, I need to leverage this if I want to get into a top-tier school, grad school. So, yeah, I had multiple languages under my belt. I traveled and lived in like Ukraine, Israel, Mexico, Panama. I worked at the embassy in Panama. I lived in Germany, former East Germany. I made my own degree. So when I applied to law school and they were like, oh, your grades and scores are meh, but they're like, well, look at this other stuff this guy's done. So they let me in to Michigan based largely on that sort of qualification. And that just made me way more interesting as a hire as well. Yeah. 
Nice. And so where'd you go to law school? Michigan. Oh, you stayed in Michigan. Okay. Yeah, I stayed. Yeah. I wasn't sure. You mentioned Harvard with Natalie Portman. So I wasn't sure if that was. Oh yeah, no. Was not Uh, even close. I wasn't close to even getting into Michigan either. (laughs) Grades wise. I just, they were looking, you know, schools are really used to people coming in with, I've got a 4.3 with all my APs and I've got this and that. I've got dual BAs and this and this and this. And I've got like, yeah, I was captain of the football team and the cheerleading squad and the ice hockey, you know? And I was like, I did all this weird shit that no, you've never seen and that no one else has done. That's like, awesome. And, and they're like, great. You know, nobody who's worked at the embassy. There's a few people, but did they also learn another language? And then did they go to the former Eastern Bloc and did they create their own concentration? Like, no, they didn't. Right. So you just yep. stand out for those reasons. Yep. Got it. And did you go, you went right into law school for undergrad? I took a year off uh-huh. and I went to Serbia, former Yugoslavia, and I was an English teacher there for a year to kill the year because I didn't get in initially to law school. I actually petitioned. What This is sort of goes along with the hacker thing, I guess, the system hacker thing, but I didn't get in. I got waitlisted and I thought, you know, all right, if I'm on the waitlist and then eventually off the waitlist because they closed it and they closed the class, that means I'm qualified, but not quite qualified as everything everybody else they've seen so far so i wrote a letter and i was like all right i'm obviously qualified to be in here you wouldn't have kept me on the wait list i'm obviously interesting to you but i'm just not making the cut for the 2003 or 2002 class what if you let me into the 2003 class first like early admission i will stop applying to other law schools and i will kill a year in Serbia on this special program with this government fellowship that I applied for that I will get. And they're like, oh, yeah, totally. That works for us, basically. So So I got it. Again, the system, but I like it. Yeah, exactly. Kind of like like not doing anything wrong, just doing things in a different way that nobody else really thinks about. And that's kind of like how I roll, you know? I think that's, I mean, there's a lot to be said there. I think if you want to make it in a lot of ways, you have to do it differently. Like I think the people that follow the kind of down the fairway way of doing things end up down the fairway. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so take the year off, travel around, then go back to law school, and then obviously just spent the rest of your life as a lawyer, right? Right, yeah, exactly. No, I, I so I first, I, law school was really hard, and I had to outwork everyone. And this yeah. is great, because law school is the place where you go, and you think, like, all, everyone's like, I'm the smartest guy from my undergrad class. Yeah. And they just cruise by. I went in there being like, I am totally effed if I don't outwork everyone. So I went from like the guy who could teach himself geometry five minutes before the quiz to the guy who's like, I need to treat this like I am the dumbest guy in the room, which might not be far from the truth. So I studied for like 14 hours a day, worked really hard, developed really good habits. You know, that's hard to do when you like kind of made your own agenda during undergrad and you had to get that disciplined. Yeah, it it was not easy. It it was not easy. Like focusing was not easy. Coming up with good habits and routines was not easy. Like I really had to mirror good students. And so every day I'd study with like these Russian kids that were like, you know, hard ass, like Russian Jewish kids whose parents probably had like a whip at home to like make them work super hard. I modeled all their strategies and like worked with them and joined study groups with them and things like that. So yeah, it was it was tough. And then and I never wanted to be a lawyer, which is good because everyone's freaking out about how they're going to get a job or what are they going to do? And I was like, eh, I don't know. I'll figure it out later. I was like that guy. And when they started doing on-campus recruiting, which is where all the employers come to this hotel and like make you interview there, I didn't even sign up for any of the interviews. So what I did is I just wandered around and 
I looked for open doors where somebody was either a no-show or there was not a booking for that firm. And I'd walk in, and I remember one of my friends passed me and goes like, oh, so-and-so, like his old roommate, is in room 231 with his firm. Go say hi. And I'm like, go say hi. All right, I guess I'll go say hi. But go say hi is almost code for like, go see what's going on with that guy. Maybe he can help you. I didn't realize that because I wasn't into the networking like I am now. But I went in there and he's like, hey, Jordan, what's going on? You should interview for this firm. And I was like, but I didn't sign up. And the guy's eating like a Subway sandwich for lunch. And he goes, give me your resume. So I give him my resume and he goes, stare right there. He goes to talk to the partner who's there. And he he like shows him my resume. Huge pile of resumes, by the way, on this guy's desk. The guy's like, Cool. And then my friend, the guy's name is Jeremy. He goes, hey, why don't you sit down and just do the interview as long as you don't mind that he's eating. And I'm like, great, whatever. The guy's like, pardon me. It's my lunch hour. I'm shoveling this sandwich into my face, just trying to get this done. So what makes you want to work here? And I go, candidly, I didn't apply to this firm, but you know, I will research everything that you have when I leave. And he's like, cool. All right. Why are you becoming a lawyer? I'm like, blah, 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 this. He's like, would you ever want to work in New York? Yeah. I love New York. He goes, cool. Well, Jeremy says you're a good dude. And I mean, you look, your grades look fine. You have all this international experience. Really interesting. Tell me about traveling to where, you know, such and such. So we chat about that and he goes, all right, well, I'm going to finish the sandwich. Nice meeting you. And I walked out and I was like, that was a waste of time. That was so stupid. Obviously, he didn't like me. And I like, before I even left that day, I had a phone message from their New York office that was like, we'd love to fly you out for further interviews, which is what they were doing. And I realized after that, because I ended up working at that firm uh, as a Wall Street attorney. And my friend who was there, he just goes, oh yeah, when we do those, we just want to make sure that you're not like a super annoying, terrible person and that your grades are okay. That's really all we're looking for. He's like, the rest of that conversation was just like small talk he was just bored and eating (laughs) so i was like what i was like my life trajectory was altered because i came in here to say hi to a guy i used to drink beers with and play like beer pong with at a house and then he put in a word for me and now i'm flying to new york to do interviews and and then i flew to new york to do interviews like a couple weeks later and they there was a job offer for me before i got off the plane coming home so that but but also that was the job market in 2006 right it was like oh, you have a pulse and you're vaguely qualified for this job, you're hired. Here's $150,000 starting salary. Like now it's different, but that was that was pure luck on my part in many ways. And uh, I mean, hey, listen, we make our own luck. You still went for it and had that meeting. So I think yeah. that's, that's awesome. So how long were you on Wall Street? Just a couple of years. I was on okay. Wall Street for a couple of years. Then I, but I picked mortgage-backed securities. Real estate oh, is the yeah. area that I was going to work in. Great industry, <laughs> bright future, especially in like 2007 or whatever, 2006, yeah. whatever. When I graduated I 08 and went into real estate a week before those mortgage-backed securities completely yeah. collapsed the entire industry. Exactly. And the economy. Yeah. Exactly. Nice. So, so, so like, yeah. it, what was also lucky though is since they just hired us, uh, like 52 of us for their first year class. Law firms don't want to lay off first year associates because they will never get a chance to recruit again. Like the the school will kill them and they will never be able to go back and recruit. Yeah. So they kept us on for nine more months after they it was even more. It was like we, we sat there for months not doing anything and they were like, don't worry about it. Things are slow. It'll pick back up. So that was three months. Then three more months, it's like Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns go out of business, these big investment banks. And they're like, okay, you can come in, but you don't have to come in anymore. You know, there's no point. We're not going to have any work for you for a while. We'll call you. Just go on like a trip or something or like enjoy New York. So we did that. And then they finally called us all in and they're like, 
everyone's going to have to get laid off at the end of the year, but we're going to keep you around for nine months, full salary, full benefits. You should try to find another job. And I was like, nah, I'm good. So I kept full salary, full benefits. I'd already started my podcast, which is now called the Jordan Harbinger show. It was something else back then. And I... So you picked up this whole, I want to be a talk show host sometime. Yeah, I was like, screw it. I'll just keep doing the show. That, like this, this hobby show you, that I was doing. While you were like, after yeah. you were a lawyer, like post-college, you started it? I started the show while I was in law school in my friend's basement. And then when I moved to New York, I started to do it there too. And then after a while, a friend of mine was like, he lived in Virginia and he got a gig on Sirius XM satellite radio. Wow. And he goes... They offered me a show, but I don't really want to do a show because I don't want to drive to New York from frickin' Virginia every like week to do a, yeah. a show. It doesn't make any sense. So he goes, you should talk to this guy, Jordan. And they were like, okay, because they were just looking for new content. Like They had uh, hundreds of channels, and they're like, okay. So they invited me to be a guest on another show, and they I did a pretty good appearance, I guess, on that show. And the station manager, again, luck, happened to be listening to that show because he was like air checking is what it's called. He's just making sure that they're doing everything right, running their commercials. So he comes down, he goes, that was so interesting what you were talking about. Cause I was talking about like networking and social dynamics and body language and reading body language, all this stuff. So I go, Hey, well, I have this podcast. Here's a card with the URL on it. You should listen to it and let me know what you think. And he's like, cool. I followed up with him a bunch. I came back for another meeting with him and I was like, did you have a chance to listen to the podcast? He's like, I did. Why don't you do your own show on satellite at like 11 a.m.? And I go, cool, I got nothing else to do. They just told us not to show up anymore. So I started doing my 11 a.m. show. Got your own serious show. Got my own serious show. They liked it. The listeners liked it. They moved me to Friday afternoon drive, started yeah. doing Friday evening drive. And this is U.S. Canada. And what, was right? the, so was what was the topic of the show? I took live call-ins of people that wanted dating and relationship advice and job advice, which is ironic because my thing, my old shtick was, I have like the best worst job in the world, but I also had a super high paying, high performing job. Yeah. And, and so people would call in for like job advice. Mostly they'd call in with dating advice questions. Yeah. And this is like sort of post love line, but love line was still going on. So it was supposed to be like love line, but Dr. Drew is older and he's a doctor. And these are like young dudes who are in New York living the life, yeah. so, so to speak. So I did that call and advice show and that was so fun, man. So I started doing that, but I was also running the podcast. So I was doing podcasting early, but also doing radio. So I had this wide breadth of experience. And I also was getting paid like a Wall Street lawyer, but I didn't have to show up to work. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. And where the dating advice come from? Were you Mr. Casanova yourself or what? So it was the opposite. I was kind of a chode, right? But <laughs> it didn't matter because I'd figured out a lot of this stuff manually. Again, hacking the process. Like, okay, if you're shy force yourself to be not shy how do you do that here's like drills and exercises that you can do okay if you want to like make a better impression at a nightlife venue how do you do that it's not about acting like a cool dude or whatever it's about going like example go in on off nights go in on like a tuesday meet the doorman chat with the doorman buy the guy a red bull chat him up meet the bartenders chat them up it's tuesday it's a slow night some bars aren't even open show up again next tuesday next tuesday next tuesday then when you show up on friday you walk right up to the doorman and you're like what's up casey he shoves everyone else aside lets you straight in because now you're a regular you're not waiting in no line 
line. You walk up to the bar. She sees you over a row of 30 people and goes, Jordan, gin and tonic? You're like, yeah, thank you. She, she you know, shoves your free drink through the lo- crowd of people to you. And, you know, you're walking around. The owner comes out to say what's up because he was there on those Tuesdays. But now he recognizes you and you're chatting with him for a while. So people who are paying attention to other people, namely like a lot of women at that point, are lo- looking at me and they're like, this guy's cool. Everyone likes him. The staff likes him. He must be a high status individual. So that was like one of the hacks that we would like do and teach. I had a million of those types of things that were perfect for guys in their twenties and thirties. So the advice we gave was always, it was never like buy flowers and put on cologne. And and it also wasn't that red pill crap that's going around now where it's like treat her like crap and emotionally abuse her. It was none of that. It was more like, here's a bunch of stuff that actually works but it's about being the best version of yourself, not about being someone else and not about being a, a trash ass human. So yeah. we really sort of mastered that. We started selling that kind of information. And that was how I started making like law partner money in my thirties. Got it. And so, yeah, I was going to say, so you lose the lawyer job. Do you just go full time into the talk show stuff? Yeah. Just full time into the talk show stuff, the coaching stuff, you know, teaching these skills to guys from all over the world. Cause we started using the talk show as lead gen. We're like, yeah, we run our boot camps every week in New York and guys would be like, Hey, I heard you on, you know, I'm from Toronto. I heard you on Sirius XM or I'm from, you know, wherever Idaho how much is your program? Yeah, you got to fly to New York and stay at my place, and we have this dope condo, and da da da. So we had guys flying in from all over the world, mm-hmm. staying in my condo, and like learning these kinds of skills. He's like kind of like nightlife and charisma skills from me and from guys that I hired to help me teach this stuff. Yep, got it. And so you, how old were you when you that all happened? Twenty seven. Twenty seven. Cool. And so how long did you do the dating advice, the serious show? Like how long did that last for? I did the serious show for four years. I did dating advice myself for like at least six or seven or so years. Then I took a backseat and just did the podcast that became the Jordan Harbinger show, but was also lead gen for some of the dating stuff for another three years. So 11 years in total on like the dating and coaching side. Then I split off from that company and started what is now the current incarnation of the Jordan Harbinger show. So I've been doing podcasting for like 14 and a half years, but I was also doing coaching for like 11 of those years. And so is now the full focus has been podcast? Full focus now is the podcast. Yeah. And what's Uh, the current iteration of it? I know it's not dating focus. Like what is the kind of totality of it? Yeah. So I mean, now I just find the most interesting people that I can and break down their stories, secrets, skills, right? So this week, right now, or maybe I shouldn't say this week, depending on when this airs. So right now, yeah. (laughs) yeah, one of the recent episodes I did was this guy who is a professional he's a pickpocket but he's a magician pickpocket right but he always wondered can i be the guy that could do this in real life so he went to italy spain and portugal and some other countries and he set up a bait wallet in him in his uh, pocket and set it up so it was really obvious and he caught pickpockets in the act and then was like i don't want to report you i just want to know what techniques you're using here's all these skills I'm using. And he would like demonstrate all his magic pickpocket skills. So these guys kind of adopt him and they show him like street pickpocketry. And he meets all these like super high end, amazing organized crime level pickpockets. And they're like sharing techniques and everything. And he told us all about like what pickpockets look for, how the mindset works, how to stop, not become a victim, what those guys are looking for defenses. Another guy I had on recently, super interesting. He infiltrated a North Korean, he posed as 
a North Korean like friendship organization leader and he yeah. went to North Korea and China and did fake deals with arms dealers from North Korea and got all these plans together and then filmed the entire thing and wow. did a documentary about it and exposed all of this illicit arms trade between Africa, North Korea, Syria and China. And so wow. he and, and he's a freaking retired chef. So he's like the perfect <laughs> undercover guy because he's like he looks like a police sketch without any of the features added, like no hair, no mustache, no tattoos. It's just he, ambiguous as could be. Yeah, he's like the most vague sort of looking dude. <laughs> so I did a, yeah, undercover with him. And then every Friday we do advice, sort of like back to our OG roots. People write in and ask us like, what do I do? My mom's obsessed with QAnon or like my brother's joining a cult. What do I do? Or how do I negotiate this salary raise? So every Friday we give advice, but every during the week we do an interview or two with somebody who's just totally off the wall. Amazing. We've had like Kobe Bryant on the show. You know, we've had some pretty amazing folks on the podcast. And it's like a top 10 doesn't do podcasts at this point too, correct? Yeah. It's in the top 1% of all podcasts. It's in the top hundred right now. Uh, Actually it's in the top 50 of all podcasts anywhere in the, in the, in the world right now. And So yeah, it's it, it, but it fluctuates. You know, everyone's got a podcast, so to be in the top fifty is pretty fucking remarkable. Yeah, yeah, it's it's the number two science show. It's the number two, or sorry, number one social science show. The only show that's bigger than us in the in the category is something called Hidden Brain, which is like this massive NPR show that's on like every radio station ever. Uh, Fair enough. So a couple more questions for you. What's next? Where do you want to take it? I'm scaling it up because with podcasting, and you probably know this from your own show, but. If you do 10 hours of prep and you, you talk to Ray Dalio and a hundred people hear it, well, it's kind of a waste, but I'll, let's just say whatever, a thousand people hear it. It's the same amount of work if a hundred thousand people hear it. It's the same yeah. amount of work if a million people hear it. So what I'm trying to do right now is scale up from where I'm at right now, which is like 10, 11 million downloads a month. I'd love to get to, you know, 50 million, whatever downloads a month, because once I'm there, I'm doing the exact same amount of work, but every single one of my ads is worth, you know, the price of a luxury car instead of a mortgage payment. Right. And the impact you can create in the, I mean, it just, and then it's also a critical mass thing where like it snowballs at that point too. It like does. It's, it's funny you should mention the impact. Cause I usually lead with that and people are like, yeah, whatever. How much money are you making? So it's funny the one time yeah. I lead with how much money you're like, but I just, impact. I know you well enough to know that, that you yeah. do care about it. <laughs> of course. No, the impact is where it's at. Cause a lot of the stuff I talk about is not just like unique stories, right? I, I teach a lot of critical thinking where, yep. you know, when you hear a bunch of crap from mainstream yep. media or, or, you know, psycho QAnon stuff, I'm giving you tools to think about it in a critical way where you go, hmm, this isn't true. You know, Jordan said this and this and this, and his guest said this and this and this. So if I parse this using these tools that I got from the Jordan Harbinger show, I can see that this is just this logical fallacy and this false premise and blah, blah, blah. Like this is that's how you change people's thinking in a democracy. We can become better citizens of our democracy. We can do make better business decisions like these are important skills. It's not. Yeah, it's not just about selling like mattresses and frickin you know, cereal on our show. Nope. Totally get it. And so last question for someone trying to pursue their own dreams. I mean, this is cool because it comes full circle from being seven to now you got to do it. Yeah, I got to do it. What's your like one piece of uncommon advice as a man that gives a lot of advice, something that you don't think people hear, but 
you're you either wish you heard or glad you heard or something that you think they could hear to pursue that dream, whatever that might be. Yeah. I mean, look, I used to think networking was something that happened that you did when you achieved a certain level of status or success. Mm -hmm. And what I've realized over the last like 20 some odd years is and this should surprise no one because everyone's like, oh, it's all about who you know. Eh, they put stank on it. But it's yeah. like, okay, if it's all about who you know, figure out how to crack that code, which is you know some of the stuff that I teach with the networking course and stuff like that. Figure yeah. out how to make it who you know. Give Make that your unfair advantage. Like yeah. when I was 20, I gave up so many opportunities to network. Like I remember wealthy friends, dads being like, come on my boat. We're going to have a fundraiser. The chief resident of this is going to be there. The dean of this school is going to be there. And I, I'd look at my friend and be like that sounds so lame let's just play basketball in your driveway yeah. you know and he's like okay but now i'm like oh my god what that dad was trying to do is get us in with these really high rolling people get them to be like these kids are going somewhere and they would throw yeah. us opportunities left and right when i finally did figure out that i needed to do that but of yeah. course i had my head up my ass right so it really is in many ways all about who you know sure you have to know the right things too to be useful to those people but man if you dig the well before you get thirsty and you're creating those network relationships before you need them opportunities like they just fall out of the sky and yeah. that's 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 why when people say like oh there's certain systemic advantages that some people have and, and other people don't have i understand why people don't believe them but really when you do have systemic advantages like a great network you 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 have no choice but to believe it because those systems are working for you. And so, you know, I don't want to get political, but if we say like, oh, no, it's all about hard work, uh, it sort of is. But I also find it ironic that a lot of the same people who say it's only about hard work and meritocracy are some of the people who, when they don't get something, are like, yeah, that guy's a brown noser. He has connections yeah. through that guy. And I'm like, well, wait, you just said it's, yeah. you know, so like. And, the, and this, the, the bizarre thing about hard work is like we all have the same hours in the day. Like what does mm -hmm. hard work really mean? Like, like you can only work, let's say you don't need sleep and you work 24 hours a day. You still there's, it's the great equalizer. We can only right. work so hard. So to say hard work is what separates successful and unsuccessful. It's like, well, that's bullshit because. Yeah. All of us can work the same amount. That's not a yeah. actual differentiator. It's, it's actually called survivor bias. So if you think about it, you know, the, like when people say, go for, follow your dreams, terrible advice, but then they'll go, but Mark Cuban said it. And I'll go, you know why? Because if he sits there and tells you everything he did to be successful and counts all of the, the lucky breaks he had, this would be a six hour keynote. It wouldn't be interesting at all. And everybody would be like, Ugh, that was terrible. Yeah. But if he sits there in his 20 minute commencement speech and says, follow your dreams, everyone applauds and then says, wow, the guy from Shark Tank was so interesting, makes a couple jokes, you know, yeah. so and we don't hear from all the people that follow their dreams directly into their mom's basement. Right. We don't hear yeah. from them. No. Survivor bias. They don't get to speak at the commencement speech usually. Exactly. So yeah. so. You always have to take that kind of advice with a grain of salt. But we know that networking works because we've seen it work. Every person has seen networking work against them at some point in their life. Right. Yeah. yeah. So like if you need any more proof that it works, you know, I, I don't know what to tell you. So yeah. make it your unfair advantage by digging the well before you get thirsty. And the earlier you do this, the better. Love it. Well, Jordan, this has been awesome. Thank you so Thanks, much man. for coming on the show. Yeah, this is fun, man. I, I rarely get a chance to talk about some of this stuff. So I appreciate it. No, of course. Hawk Media is your outsourced CMO and marketing team. We'll dive into your business for free, identify opportunities in your marketing strategy, then get you teamed up with individual experts, all month to month and a la carte. Whether you're looking for a Facebook advertiser, a web designer, or a fractional CMO, we can help you drive growth for your business. We've successfully grown over 2,500 brands, and we're here to help you too. 
No matter your goal, we've got you covered. To learn more, visit hawkmedia.com. That's hawk with an E, media.com. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.